0: and chapter 23 that's the gospel according to Luke this time chapter 23 on page 1217 in the church bible 1217 and reading at verse 39 this is a well known incident in the life of Christ verse 39 taking us to the cross then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying if you are the Christ save yourself and us but the other answering rebuked him saying do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me. In paradise. And particularly this morning, the prayer of verse 42, where the dying thief, as he's often called, says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And uh, we'll look at the prayer this morning, and God willing, tonight. We will look at Christ's answer to him, where he assures him that today you will be with me in paradise. But for the morning, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In this passage, we have perhaps the most famous example of what I referred to just a couple of weeks ago as an 11th hour conversion. The so called thief in the cross. On the Cross is, I think, the most famous example of that. Most of you, or at least some of you, will have heard of Bishop Ryle's famous remarks about this man. Bishop Ryle was Bishop of Liverpool in England. He died in 1900, a famous evangelical bishop and evangelical writer, too. Uh, Ryle famously said that he had met very few people who he believed were converted at the 11th hour, and he was highlighting that because of the tendency in some people to wait and to hope for an 11th hour conversion. He said that he had honestly, in his whole ministry, met very few. But he said that nonetheless, here we have an example of that. He says we have one, so that none should despair, but only one, so that none Should presume. One so that none should despair, but only one so that none should presume. And it's true to say that both these thieves on the cross function as both a warning and an encouragement, because after all, there were two thieves on the cross. And in the glory of the conversion of one, it is easy to forget the utter loss, and the ruin of the other. We need to keep them both in mind. But nonetheless, there's no doubt that this man here is presented before us as an encouragement. While there is life, there is hope. And here is someone that we wouldn't have expected, uh, amazingly converted and brought into the kingdom of God. So I say that to yourselves by means of encouragement to keep praying, for those who have been long on a path of darkness and disobedience and rebellion. And I'm saying it to to any of you who might yourselves be on such a path and maybe have been on it for some time because the door is still open for yourself to pass through it until at last it closes. Now, I think it's fair to say that it's an unexpected providence that took this man to the cross beside Jesus. It's probably the case that he wasn't originally intended to be there at that time. Of course, he was in God's purpose, but not in the purpose of man. You'll probably remember, those of you who are here often, that I've often told you that the crucifixion was deliberately set up as a mock coronation. That was how the Romans intended it, and the Jews were quite happy to play along with that. Is he a king? Well, let's crown him, and let's crown him in this way. When I say the Jews were happy to go along with that, they were happy to go along with it until Pilate commanded that this is the king of the Jews be written at the top of the cross. The Jews were unhappy with that, they wanted it replaced with, he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate famously responded, what I have written, I have written. Because, of course, God intended that it would remain so. God allowed the mock coronation to take place, because in a peculiar way, Christ was ascending his throne. And even on the cross, from which, in a strange way, he still rules, he exerted his power. And he exerted his power in the very depth of his suffering by bringing this man who was so far away from the kingdom of God. You'll remember there is such a thing as being near to the kingdom and being far from it. I hope most of you who are not in it are near it. But he exerted his power from the depths of his humiliation, in bringing this man who was very far from the kingdom of God into the kingdom by his own mercy and grace. But there's no denying that it was a mock coronation. That's how it was intended. You'll remember that the soldiers crowned him with a crown of thorns. They clothed him, albeit temporarily, with a purple robe, although they stripped that off him, They put a reed or a staff in his hand as a kind of mock scepter, a mock symbol of authority. They bowed the knee before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. The cross, too, was intended to be his throne, and his title, King of the Jews, was written on the top of it. But, of course, no throne is complete without men of honor at the right hand and at the left. And whenever a king would appear in honor, in state, there would be a particular distinction given to two people who would appear on the right and on the left. I don't know if you remember that occasion in Christ's ministry when James and John, the apostles, went up to him and said, grant that we may sit in your kingdom, one on your right hand and the other on your left. The rest of the apostles were angry at that request. And it's a strange request to make. The Lord, you remember, famously responded by saying, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of? Are you able to be baptized with this terrible baptism that I I'm going to be baptized with. That's the baptism of a suffering and death. And of course they say. uh, Partly in love. But partly in ignorance. We are able. Did they know that this. Is what it meant. Did they know that being at the right. And at the left hand of Christ. Was going to involve something like this. That this is how his kingship. And his claim to kingship would be viewed. Uh, Sometimes. We don't know what we ask for in our prayers. Uh, That was a foolish prayer in a sense that James and John asked, but many a foolish prayer we put up ourselves too, and we're very thankful when God declines them. But when the Romans are planning the mock crucifixion of Christ, they choose who the members of the nobility will be. They choose who his man of distinction on the right hand would be and the man of distinction on the left and were told that day that they chose two robbers, two robbers, two criminals, two malefactors. And when they are taken from their cell that day in Jerusalem, I mean, little did they know, they had no idea, either of them, that on that morning they would be crucified. There were probably no crucifixions planned. The whole thing had been done so hastily, so quickly, but they're marched from their cells, and led out to Golgotha. Little did they think that day what was going to happen and how the day would end, and who would have thought, observing them, that before the day was finished, one of them would be in glory, that the other one would be in hell would be no great surprise, but that one of these men marching from his cell to the crucifixion would be in glory. I mean, what an astonishing thing that was amazing grace, an amazing God. He takes one and he leaves another. The power of God, that power that is available for you too, if you turn and call upon his name. Now the Bible tells us when these two men were crucified, one on the right and one on the left, that they joined in the general contempt that was being shown for the Lord. It's easy to follow a multitude to do evil. You know that today, whether you're young or old, when a crowd do something, you just do it. Um, The easiest thing in the world to follow an example that's being set for you. We're told, sadly, that it was the rulers who set the example of contempt. The scribes and the Pharisees shouting, save yourself if you are indeed the chosen of God. Come down from the cross, and we will believe. As if people who had seen a hundred signs and chose to remain blind to the signs, saying, show us a sign still. If you can come down, we'll believe you. In fact, they used words which they had sung themselves in a psalm. Many a time, these scribes and Pharisees had sung Psalm 22 in their churches and in their synagogue. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. And there they are, almost altogether, unaware that they are fulfilling a scripture saying the very same thing to the Savior. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he will have him. The passers-by were told, joined in. Matthew tells us that they reviled him, to revile is just to speak evil of someone, to blaspheme them, or to slander them. And they spoke with contempt. Psalm 22 tells us that they were essentially pulling faces. That is what Matthew tells us as well. They put out their tongue and pulled faces, showing the utmost contempt. For the Son of God. The soldiers too. When Christ was thirsty. They offered him vinegar. To drink. And uh, that was an act of mockery. Luke tells us that that that's what it was. In verse 36. In the chapter before you. The soldiers also mocked him. Coming and offering him sour wine. And saying. Notice how they joined in. Things they didn't even know about. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It's a good thing they were doing it in ignorance and in unbelief. Before the day was out, these soldiers too had come to recognize the glory and the majesty of this man. But the scriptures are telling us here that both Jew and Gentile, the power of Judea and the power of Rome, are uniting together as a kind of universal rejection. Of this son of God. And. They too are fulfilling scripture. Psalm 69. They gave me vinegar to drink. When as my thirst. Was great. And then the gospels tell us. That the thieves themselves. Joined in. Luke only mentions one. Matthew and Mark. Specify that both mocked him and reviled him. Mark says they that were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. I think it's Matthew who actually adds that. Same words. But staggeringly, as the hours pass from nine o'clock to noon, an amazing change comes over one of them. And I want to look at that change with you as the Lord helps us today. And as we look at the change, uh, I hope we see what it involves and hope and pray that it's a change that comes upon ourselves too in the same way. Now, in looking at this man, you may think we know nothing about him. And it's true to say that we know little, but it's not true to say that we know nothing. First of all, we know definitely something very important about his past, and that is that he is a Jew. And that comes through in his prayer, and especially in the answer to the prayer. In the prayer, he praises a Jew. Lord, he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He knows about the Messiah. And he knows that the Messiah has a kingdom. And then in Christ's reply, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus uses a word there, paradise, and a concept behind it that only makes sense if the thief is a Jew. See, at this time, in this man's experience, there is no way that the Lord would give words to him that he couldn't possibly understand. When a man is uh, facing death and when he puts up an earnest, anguished prayer, either the Lord will be silent or he will give him the plain truth, one or the other. And he would never baffle him with an originally Persian word like paradise unless the poor man was a Jew who understood what the Lord meant. The Lord will always meet us with language that we understand if we are genuinely wanting an understanding. So the man is definitely a Jew. You often meet people say we've no idea whether this man was Jew or Gentile. Well, yes, we do. His prayer and the answer tell us clearly that he's a Jew. And because we know he's a Jew, we know other things too. In fact, that immediately puts a flood of light on the man's situation. In the first place, we know that he knew his Bible. Every Jewish child, like most or many of yourselves, went to church every Sabbath day and he learnt the Word of God. He would have learnt it at home. He would have learnt it from his elders. He would have heard it read in the synagogue. He would have heard it preached in the synagogue. He knew the history of the people, the sayings of the wise, the law. And the prophets, and he knew about the expectation of a Messiah who would save both the Jew and the Gentile, and especially he knew the Psalms. Many of you have had the privilege of learning Psalms in your childhood. I'm thankful I had that privilege myself. I wish it were a privilege that everyone had and everyone took advantage of. I can't possibly begin to convey the head start that you have in life. Not by simply remembering the word of God, but by remembering it in psalmodic form. In the songs that the Lord gave for us to remember and to lay up as a treasure in the heart. And this man was used to having the psalm as his songbook. And I think to be quite honest that that's very important here in understanding this man's thought processes. This man is thinking on the cross, This man is gradually, with God's help, piecing things together and coming to an understanding. And the knowledge that he has himself of the word of God is vital to that end. There's no doubt that his experience would have been very different had he not known the word of God. And for you to know as much as you know of the word of God is a wonderful thing. And at the beginning, I said that this can be so important for you. When you're praying for people who are at the 11th hour in their own lives, well, if the word of God lies in their hearts dormant, who knows but that the Lord might not awaken it. There is a famous instance of a Puritan who traveled from England uh, to America, to the New World, and who remembered in his 80s the word that was preached to him while he was still a teenager or perhaps even younger than that, and he was converted by meditating on it. Isn't that a remarkable thing? And who knows how long a person can carry the precious water of God's word before God turns it into the wine of his kingdom? Well, that's what is true of this man. He was not ignorant on the cross, he was not ignorant. He knew a lot, but sad to say, he had turned away from it. But I think it's quite interesting to see this as an exchange, this prayer and this answer, an exchange between one Jew and another, between one son of Abraham and another son of Abraham. But the second thing we know about this man is that however much he knew, and however much he may have even valued it earlier in his life, he turned away from it. He lost his way. He became a criminal, a robber, To the point when he is being executed, he says, I am being executed justly. Do you not fear God, he said to the other thief with whom he probably shared a cell? Do you not even fear God since you are under the same condemnation and we indeed justly? For we receive the due reward of our deeds. Why does someone who starts life with the Bible And with the Psalms, end up a thief and a robber. Why have you ended up as you are when you had a completely different beginning? You've become a grief to your father or to your mother who bore you. And why is that so when you had a different start and a different training in your life? Bad company, bad influence. Yes, bad choices. And the choices are yours, Maybe the company and the influence were your choices too. And you never meant, when you chose the company and the influence, you never quite meant to choose the life that they lived, but you did. And at the end of the day, all choices are your own. No one forces you down the life you've gone. And there's no point sitting down and complaining about anyone else for the choices you've made in life. You chose them. You're accountable for them. You must give an account to God for them. That's why the book of Proverbs tells us to choose our friends carefully, to choose our companions, and to make sure with David that we are companions of those who love and fear your name. Now, as a young man or as a young woman, I want you to take stock of that. I want you to think carefully about who you're keeping company with, who you're spending time with, whose example you are following, even in the house of God itself, is it the example of those who walk close with the word of God or those who sit just a bit loose by it? Every choice has a, an influence on the next choice that you make. And here's this man with a good start being dragged out to be crucified as a criminal. But as he hangs on the cross in his own shame... In his own shame, shame to himself and shame to his family, he learns something about himself and something about the man beside him. First of all, learns something about them, about himself. He started at nine o'clock, blaspheming Christ like the other criminal. It's important to remember that. It's no different. It's no different. It's not as though he came out of the cell thinking about what Christ was like. That's not how he came out of the cell. He was mocking and blaspheming along with the rest. But now he can't. I mean, at some point, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, at some point before noon, when his friend on the other side of the Savior, I would tend to think it was probably the left When he begins to mock again, suddenly this man, for some reason, doesn't want to join in. In fact, he rebukes him. I'm sure the other one looked at him and said, well, who do you think you are? But he doesn't want to join in. He rebukes him. Do you not fear God by now? The hours are passing and we're weakening and you're dying and I'm dying. Do you not fear God. Seeing you're under the same condemnation as this man, why on earth are you blaspheming someone who was crucified and cursed beside you when you're crucified and cursed yourself? What's more, he says, we deserve it. This man has done nothing wrong, but we're here for just reasons, because we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Now you read any historian who ever touches on crucifixions and they'll tell you that crucifixion is such a, a painful and agonizing way to die that it brings out the worst in everybody. People don't get better in the cross, they get worse on the cross. As the time drags and as the pain grows, they begin to curse and to rail and to blaspheme against everybody and anything. That's a well-known phenomenon in connection with those who are left crucified. Not only that, but they're defiant. They want to die with strength and with a kind of dignity, and they self-justify on the cross. This man is different. I deserve to die. Now, do you think, do you think he says that as someone who believes that he deserves to die under Roman criminal law, Or under the Jewish criminal law? Is that all that he means? Is all that this man is saying, I'm a criminal, I'm a robber? No, he means far more than that. This man is seeing himself at last under the moral law of God, which transcends our civil laws and our criminal laws. I hope it is behind them or underneath them, but ultimately it transcends them. Any authority that they have comes from that law of God, and he sees himself in the light of it. I deserve to be here. What have I done? What have I done with my life? I deserve death. It's a good thing that. I don't know as you get older, as you go along life's journey, is the habit of self-justification increasing and growing? Do you think, looking back on your life, that God is bound to be merciful to you? that God is bound to forgive you? Do you think you would be an unjust God to damn you and to doom you to a lost eternity? According to how you answer that question, so is the state of your soul. It says something good about you if you believe that you are dying justly and that you are condemned justly. And for God to condemn you at the judgment seat would be a just thing. If you can say that, it is a good thing. I would say it usually takes the power of grace to say that, really, in this life. But nonetheless, it is possible to say, and it's a good thing if you can say it, he sees himself in the light of the law of God. Friends, death concentrates the mind wonderfully, does it not? It's easy to be glib and superficial when you're not dying. It's not so easy to be glib and superficial when you're dying, although people try to do it. I mean, Death is... So airbrushed out of the public discourse and out of the culture and people like to think of themselves as laughing their way into death. But who does? Who does? It concentrates the mind wonderfully. And if God is real and true, then who are you when you stand before him? Are you sure today that you have in your hands something that will acquit you? Are you positive? that if God is real and true, that he will justify you and that he will admit you into heaven. Are you sure? You hope. You hope? On what basis? If I was you, I'd want to be sure and urge you to be sure. Prepare to meet thy God, Amos says the prophet. You prepare for everything, but prepare to meet your God. Prepare right now to meet your God because you've got no idea when you're going to meet him anyway. He sees his own guilt before God. And that's a good thing. But it's not enough. Praise God, as well as seeing something about himself, he sees something about the man beside him. In fact, he sees a couple of things. First of all, he sees the simple fact of his innocence. This man has done nothing wrong. How does he know that? Well, I would suggest to you that he sees it certainly, first of all, in his bearing, in the way that he conducts himself, even on the cross. I don't know if this robber had ever heard Jesus preach. It's quite possible that he did. It's quite possible that pretty much everybody in Judea had heard this man preach. But it's how he conducts himself in death that's so different. When he is reviled, he doesn't revile again. He commits himself from his trial all the way up the ascent of that hill. He commits himself to him who judges righteously. There's not a word of condemnation on a personal level, addressed to any who are afflicting him. Not a word. Even on the cross he prays. Even on the cross he prays for his enemies. Even when the Roman soldiers so callously nail his hands to the cross, Father, he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And everything about him for three solid hours speaks of a man who never did anything wrong. He just knows that. You know, some people can often say that when people are guilty of certain things, they usually just let it slip at some point before death. Usually comes out one way or another, and there's something about people that reveals their guilt or innocence. Well, this man just exuded innocence at every point. He had done nothing wrong. Of course, at the end of his ministry, which was pretty much the end of his life, he turned round to the people and said, which of you can convict me of sin? Nobody answered. Nobody answered because nobody could. So, yes, he has come to believe in the innocence of the man just to his left. But more than that, more than that, his innocence is also connected to the claim that the Lord Jesus has made. Why was he being crucified? For claiming to be a king. That is the main reason that the Lord is crucified, for claiming to be a king. That's not the reason for which the Jews would have crucified him, far more than that. But according to Roman law, this was his problem. And so this was the ground of his condemnation. And this was the message that was now coming to this thief on the cross, From the man, from the head of the man on his left, Jesus, the King of the Jews. This thief comes to believe that that is who he is. How do we know that? Again, simply from his prayer. Lord, he says in verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, he says. Now, that could be an honorary title. Of course, that's true. But not when you couple it with, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. Yes, I believe that you are a king. <laughs> it's very hard for us to understand how ridiculous that claim seemed to be on Jesus' part and how ridiculous that conviction seemed to be on the thief's part. I mean, to the ordinary Jew looking on, there is just no way on earth that a man hanging, cursed from a tree, can can be considered a king. I mean, the only way he could be considered a king is if, is if he was some kind of king of the underworld, if he was Beelzebub, if he was um, a prince in the kingdom of the devil. But this man comes to believe that he is a king in possession of a kingdom. Not just any king, but the king of the Jews. What the title said he was. In other words, that he was the king of kings and that he was the Lord of lords. How does he come to such a conviction? How does he come from nine o'clock to twelve o'clock to change his mind so absolutely about this man on the cross? Well, I suppose you could say that the Holy Spirit changed his mind, and absolutely so. The Holy Spirit changed his mind. None of us will ever change our minds about this man apart from the Holy Spirit. You can come into the church with a dim view of Christ. You could leave with an exalted view of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit uses the truth. We have all been as Christians, those of you who are Christians today, you have been born again by the word of truth. And it is the truth that God used to bring this man to himself. The truth that this man knew that was buried in his heart. The Holy Spirit opened his eyes to it in the light of the man who was standing beside him, crucified beside him. And he suddenly recognizes, or can we just say gradually recognizes, that the man beside him is the man spoken of in the Bible hundreds of years ago. In fact, if you go back to the prophecies in Genesis, you'll find that they're over a thousand years ago from this point in time. Of course, for us, they're much longer back still. They're over 3,000 years ago, but for him, they were over a thousand years ago. Is the man beside me disfigured? Yes. But did the prophet not tell us that when he would come into the world, his visage would be marred beyond that of the sons of men? As the Hebrew is saying there, I think the Hebrew is perhaps a little vague or perhaps could we say ambiguous there. I think the meaning is that his visage is marred beyond recognition as man. His face is barely human. So much has it been put out of place by the people who have torn it in the mocking prior to the cross, is he disfigured, his visage marred more than the sons of men? Did the Bible not say so? Is he crucified, this king, this Lord of glory? Well, yes. But did David not say in that psalm that I sang that he pierced my hands and my feet? Many's a time we probably wondered in the synagogue what that meant. Many a the time the elders used to speak about what it meant to be pierced in the hands and in the feet. But is the man beside me not pierced in his hands and in his feet? Is he naked and ashamed? How could the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings ever be naked and ashamed? But did the same psalm not say that they parted my garments, and for my vesture they cast lots? Is he silent and accepting his fate? How is that consistent with the messianic king that we were wanting? A king of dignity and of strength and of great courage. A king who speaks and his will is done. Why is this man just taking it? Why is he led along silently and he is just crucified and accepting it? But did the prophet not say that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter? And as a sheep before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. For 800 years we've been reading that in the synagogue. For 800 years we've been reading these words. And they're fulfilled in my sight. Is he praying for others? Is he praying for the enemies of Judea? Is he praying for Roman soldiers? Well, did Isaiah not say that he would make intercession for the transgressors? And did I not hear him pray that when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is there a prayer for me in there? I wonder if he asked such a thing. I wonder if he wondered if the Lord would include himself in his prayers and in his petitions. Maybe you can reach such a point, too, where... You can feel you're brought to a place where you say, can he take me? Can he take me with my life and my history, my history of rejection? Is he mocked by being given vinegar? Did David not say that they gave me vinegar to drink when as my thirst was great? But how can he hang here how can he hang here, cursed on a hill, in a place of a skull that reeks of death and reeks of abandonment? My God, but did I say I not say that he was numbered with the transgressors? Yes, and by the grace of God, the conviction grows in this man's heart that the man on his left. Is exactly who he claimed to be. That the title above him may have been there for mockery's sake, but it's there by the appointment of God, the King of the Jews. Yes, and because he is that, he is the King of the Gentiles also. The conviction grows over a period of time. Somewhere between 9 and 12, this man is changed. It can be the same with you. Maybe even through the reading of the Bible like that, or the preaching of the Bible. It's like pieces of a jigsaw coming together. For him, it is the law and the Psalms and the prophets. Verses he had heard and verses he had sung, and they're suddenly brought to life because of what happens at his side. And so it can be with yourself. God brings something about in providence and the Bible becomes alive and you recognize this man. So he didn't just come to a conviction about himself, who he was and what he deserved, but he came to a conviction about Christ. And if he comes to believe that Christ is the Messiah, then other things follow. Because after all, a Messiah was not just to be the king of the Jews, but the king of the world. He came into this world to be its savior, a savior for the Jew and a savior for the Gentile. He believes it. You know, um, I've often thought about this, but in some ways I think there is nothing quite so amazing, really, as as one crucified man coming to believe that another crucified man is actually the savior of the world. It's quite astonishing. If you put yourself into the situation, it is quite astonishing that such a thing would be so. But not only does he believe that, he believes that this man is going to come back one day in power and in glory. That's what he prays. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, it's easy to take that prayer as a prayer that has to do with Christ going up to heaven. Remember me, in other words, when you go to heaven. And as though Jesus' responses, assuredly I say to you, not only will I be in heaven, but you too will be with me in heaven. In other words, we will both be there today. Now, plausible as that seems, that's not really what the prayer of the thief involves. When he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, there is a difference between coming into your kingdom and going into heaven. The thief is not really praying anything to do with going. His prayer has to do exclusively with coming and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the Jewish hope never focused on what we would call the interim state or the intermediate state. It always looked forward to the end, and I think we should emulate them in that. In other words, their focus was very much on the resurrection. They buried their dead with reverence and with care. Think of Abraham. putting Sarah into the cave of Machpelah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and all the righteous lying as dust, awaiting the last trumpet, awaiting God's intervention, awaiting the resurrection of the dead when the glory of God will be seen and when it will cover the whole earth. This This thief has come to believe that the Lord will die. He expects the Lord to die, but he expects him not just to go to heaven, but to return in power. And when he returns in power, he doesn't want to be left behind. He wants to lie there in the intervening period, like the righteous, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, And when the Lord returns to receive his kingdom in its fullness and glory, he wants to be remembered that day. When their dust rises, let my dust rise, Lord, on that day. When you awaken the whole body of the righteous, north, south, east, and west, don't let me be forgotten on that day. That's what he prays for. In other words, he must have expected, as I said, that this man was going to die. Because he had come to believe that he was the Lord of glory didn't mean that he believed he was going to come down from the cross, going to extricate himself from the difficulty and just somehow reveal himself more spectacularly to be who he had claimed to be all along. He didn't believe that at all. This man was dying. Why do you think he had come to believe he was dying? Well, for the same reason, he had come to believe everything else about him. In other words, that he was the fulfillment of everything that the Bible had said he would be. In other words, he would die. Above all else, he would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He had come to believe that the man beside him who was king was dying and dying for a purpose. Dying to save The sacrificial lamb of God. You say, well, surely that is a difficult conclusion to draw. (laughs) Is it? Really? Do we not say the rest of the time that the amazing thing is that people didn't draw that conclusion? Oh, he drew that conclusion. He drew that conclusion because the spirit of God gave him that understanding of the scripture that he had always handled. Always handled until he had turned Away from it. So you will die yes. But Lord when you come back. As I believe you will. Remember me that day. Remember me. A poor. Vile. Undeserving sinner. Who hangs here because I deserve it. Never mind what I am, even in the sight of the law of God, even in terms of the law of the land, in terms of everything, I'm where I deserve to be. Remember me. Don't forget me. Remember me with that love which you bear to your own. This is a great prayer. Like many great prayers, it's short, it's simple, and it's sincere. Short, simple, and sincere. And it's a prayer that God won't refuse. Why? Because he shall regard and lend his ear unto the needy's humble prayers. And the afflicted's prayer he will not scorn. I'm sure this prayer is prayed in hope. Hope. We know that Christ not going to refuse this prayer. Did he know it? Is he sure of that? Well, that's an interesting question. As the Lord turns round him, I think it's, it's always the righteous who appear at his right and the unrighteous at his left. Shall we say that the Lord turns, he said, to the man on his right Does the thief know what the Lord's going to say? We know, but does he know? We'll leave that till this evening. Let us pray. O Lord, grant us to understand the justness of our own condemnation. If we are to be found as we are, And uh, Lord forbid that we should appear unjust and unholy before your judgment seat. We pray in grace that you would bring us to the position to which this man came, where he was in all his cursedness stripped of everything and casting himself upon the grace and mercy of a Savior. Take us there, we pray. For his name's sake. Amen. Let's close um, by singing again in the same psalm that we were singing earlier, Psalm 22, and at verse 22. Sheffield. To the tune Sheffield, verse 22. The turning point, of course, in this psalm comes at verse twenty one which opens with a a prayer that God would deliver him from this crucifixion out of the roaring lion's mouth that is the devil himself, do thou me shield and save, and then the temperature and the spirit immediately changes, for from the horns of unicorns, anear to me thou gave that is Christ uh, looking towards deliverance in hope and then he sees the results of his suffering. I will show forth thy name unto those that my brethren are. Amidst the congregation thy praise I will declare. At that point he is surrounded by a congregation of dogs, of evildoers, but he looks forward to declaring God's name amongst those who will worship him. Praise ye the Lord who do him fear Him glorify all ye the seed of Jacob. So the Jewish people particularly fear him all, that Israel's children be. Now, how precious this is. For he despised not, nor abhorred the afflicted's misery, nor from him hid his face, but heard when he to him did cry. 22 to 24, let's stand to sing.
1: I will show forth Thy name unto those that I have been now, amidst the congregation. I not not abhor the afflicted Mess.
0: Before the blessing, please remember that the gallery empties first if you would stay below until you get the signal to leave. Let's receive the blessing of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.